You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see. God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a land good and broad, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, but I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you. That I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go 
unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? It's not I, the Lord. Now, therefore, go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses and he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. This is the word of the Lord. Please lift your hands with me as we come to God in prayer. Lord, add a blessing to the reading of your word, the preaching of your word, the hearing of your word, so that we may believe your word and obey your word and announce your word in the world. Lord, make of us not just hearers, but doers of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Since the Enlightenment... There has been a broad announcement in the sciences and in sociology, a prediction that religion 
would eventually die. That pretty soon people would see that they don't need this crutch anymore and that it would be a useless thing to keep religion around any longer. This has been a, a prediction for a couple hundred years now. And the reality is that not only has religion not died, it's actually as strong as it's ever been. It's as strong as it's ever been. Even though we've had a, an increase in the sciences, and even though there's been an increase in technology, there has been no waning of, of religiousness or spirituality. In fact, the demise that was predicted in the past is now, is now a badge of honor. When someone says that they're, they're seeking spiritually, when someone says that they're, they're on a spiritual journey, it's a pretty honorable thing in our culture. They, they have the air of being enlightened, of being knowledgeable, sensible people. It's an interesting thing in our culture that, that when people say that they're, they're a spiritual seeker, that they dabble in spiritual things, that they're, they're, they're of the mind to pay attention to things spiritual, people cheer them on a bit. It's acceptable to be a spiritual seeker. The thing is, it's not, it's not spiritual to claim that you have actually found something. It's not spiritual to claim that you have actually found God. In fact, there's a great condescension toward those who claim to have actually found something in their search. I'm not one of those self-righteous people who claims to have it figured out or to have a hard truth. You know, I, what's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. It's popular. You hear that, don't you? This is popular. But here's the thing. In the Bible... We are, we are given a very clear statement that it is possible not just to be a seeker, but to be a finder. And the heavier accent in the scriptures is actually the idea that we're not the primary seekers, that God is. God's the one doing the seeking. God's the one doing the searching. He's the one who is, who is finding and revealing. We started a series on the book of Exodus. And something that I want to make clear is this. Exodus is not just a history book. It's actually theological proclamation. It's preaching through history. It's, it's biased. It's not unbiased. It's biased in that God is the Lord of history. And we have a progressive revealing of who God is, his identity and his name. And what we ought to associate with this God and this identity and this name in history, in the pages of history. And it's, it's a proclamation through history that is written for the purposes of seeing the coming generations believe and turn to the God of the Exodus. It was not enough for God to rescue the, the, the generation that was actually in bondage in Egypt physically. But it was also for the generations to come so that they too would find the way out through the God of the Exodus. It's the story of salvation that is meant to be for all the generations. And so this morning we come to what is one of the one of the most dense, thematically dense passages of Scripture. Um, midway through the week, I was I was regretting a little bit that I had bitten off so much. 
but it's a unit that you can't really break apart. But it's like a juncture. It's kind of like where all the railroad tracks come together. They go every which way. That's what this text is this morning. But we're going to approach it through two points. You know, I I promise you, I'll be done preaching before the kickoff. I promise you. (laughs) We're going to approach this text through two points. We're going to see God's revelation and God's liberation. God's revelation and God's liberation. And I want, you to, I want you to enter into the story with me. God gives us his word in story form. God doesn't give us a law code. He doesn't, he doesn't say, here's the law code. This looks like a law code. This big old babble, all right? <laughs> but God gives us his word. You got to remember, he gives us his word in story. Because it is stories that change us. It is through the vehicle of story That God means to enter into your story. When you see the way that God operates in the story, then you can have more confidence that he can work in your story. You can be caught up into this drama. You can become a character in this kind of story. The themes can become the themes of your life as well. So let's look at our first point where we see God's revelation. The title of this sermon is I Am. And I want us to see The way in which the I am reveals himself. Now, for Moses, it was an ordinary work day. Just an ordinary work day, y'all. He's been shepherding Jethro's flock for the last 40 years. He knows the desert inside out. He knows every patch of grass and where it's growing and where everything is. is. This is his territory. Think about this. 40 years in the desert. At some point, we're going to hear about this theme again. Moses is out in the desert caring for the flock of Jethro. It's an ordinary day. He knew this desert, but the text begins to heighten our anticipation because as he is taking the flock out to pasture, the text tells us that Moses led the flock to the west side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And Horeb is just a nickname for Sinai, Mount Sinai, where God in chapter 20 is going to thunder from the mountain. He's going to reveal his law and he's going to have Moses come down with the instructions for the way of guidance for the community of God. What kind of people they're going to become as a result of their rescue from Egypt. And so here is the precursor. Moses is at Horeb. And it's in this place that Moses sees an unusual sight. Now, in Moses' experience, there is nothing that burns faster than a bush on fire in the desert. I mean, when it, if it catches fire, it's going up like that. It's a flame, it's a burst, and then it disappears. But Moses beholds something very unusual. He sees a bush on fire, but the bush is not consumed. And the text tells us that Moses says in verse three, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned. Now, the first thing I want you to see about this text is that it's just the text. God encounters Moses at work. I know you don't think that's possible. 
But God encounters Moses at his day job. God interrupts Moses ordinary. Moses wasn't at synagogue. Moses wasn't at church. Moses wasn't at choir rehearsal. Moses wasn't in some some high and holy place. God interrupts his ordinary and he sanctifies his ordinary. This is where Moses interrupts. God interrupts Moses. And I want you to see something that when God interrupts Moses, the text says, turns aside. Now, now Moses could have said, ah, it's getting late. I got to take the flock back home by eight o'clock. I got, I got too much going on. He, he, he wasn't too busy to engage the interruption. He wasn't too busy to explore this thing that is that is messing with his paradigm. And that's the next thing I want you to see that this whole burning bush thing, it interrupts his paradigm. Moses knew things to be a certain way. Moses knew what was possible and what was not possible. And what was not possible is a bush that burns and is not consumed. But he's in, he's encountering something that jacks up his paradigm. You need to understand something before you ever have a real encounter with God. He's, you got to let him jack up your paradigm. He, he's got to surprise you. Listen, I, I, when people come to church and they say, do you guys believe in a God of of judgment? Because I can't believe in a God of judgment. Do, do you guys believe in a God like like and they begin to run down through. It's, it's like the designer God thing. Right. But, but, but here's the deal. The Bible isn't trying to, to fit God into your mold. It, you, you, God is not in your story. You're in his. God, God is not on your clock. You're on his clock. The minute you get a God that's like this, this pocket size, you, you've got the wrong God. And you're going to get nothing but, but a version of yourself. This God overturns Moses' paradigm. It can't be this way. Listen, if you are here today and you're and you're exploring faith stuff, you don't know that you necessarily buy it. You're here for whatever reason. We're we're really glad you're here. There's no other place that we'd rather you be than here in the church with us working through your doubts, processing through things honestly. But the first thing I want to challenge you to do is consider the idea. what, What if your paradigm was interrupted? What if, what if things are not the way that you think they are? What might it be like for you to suspend judgment on the things you think are right and true and non-negotiable? That's, the, that's what happens to Moses in this text. He turns aside and his paradigm is altered. His view of reality is contradicted. His normal is interrupted. So here's the question. Have you turned aside or are you too busy? Turning aside can look a number of ways, but it's, it's attentiveness. It's attentiveness. Are you too busy? Are you open to your paradigm being altered? Because something happens in this text once Moses, this is the beginning of Moses' call. It all begins with God interrupting his ordinary, meeting him at work, Moses turning aside, and then the encounter begins. And there is something very I think very distinctly Christian happening here in this text. I want you to look at something. Look at verse four. Something important happens in this encounter. Verse four reads like this. 
after Moses turned aside. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. What do you say in that moment, right? Like, Moses, here, (laughs) present, right? Like, Moses, Moses. Now, here's the deal. There are biblical scholars that call this a repetition of endearment. Whenever someone's name is is called two times by God, it's a sign that the person calling cares, that there's affection, that there's friendship. In other words, when Moses heard his name called, he had the distinct impression that the one calling loved him. It's 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 a submitted convention. The, the, the double calling of his name, Douglas Stewart, who's a, uh, a scholar who teaches at Gordon-Conwell now, he suggests this. It's a repetition of endearment. Now, Moses understands that he's addressed by someone who loves and cares for him. But look at the very next thing in verse 5. After he says, here I am, then this voice says, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy. It's holy ground. Moses, Moses, endearment. Yes? Watch out. Stay back. Don't come near. He doesn't say, take off your sandals and then come near. He says, take off your sandals. Don't come close. And what we see is this this dual picture of this God. That he is love, but he's holy. He's caring, but he's dangerous. Because, and you see it in Moses' response after he fully reveals who he is. I am the God of your father. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac and of Jacob. And it says, and Moses hid his face because he was afraid. In other words, Moses realized who he was dealing with. And the implication of the text is, have you? Have you realized the God that you're dealing with? Look. Here's the deal. Most versions of God in our cultural context, they fall off of the horse to one of the two sides. Either it's Moses, Moses, or it's don't come close. Either they have a God who's all love, who's all good, mushy, gushy, and he he is not holy. Or they have a God who is stern and hard and he's not loving. But scripture announces God as more loving than the, 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 the God of love in the culture and more holy, more righteous, more stern than the God of, of the self-righteous in this culture. Do you see God is saying, I'm, I'm more than either of those pictures. And it calls for reverence. It calls for reverence. That's what we see in Moses. It's like this. When, when my family was in Colorado, I, I still have more Colorado illustrations. When our family was in Colorado this past summer, we, we went and we took some, some journeys to, to, to different state parks up in the Rockies. And I remember when I, I took my fishing pole and I, I went to this lake and I was walking past and I saw this sign and the sign said, you're in bear country. I said, what? I, I went up and looked. I, and I started looking over my shoulder. I, anytime I heard a twig snap, I was. But here's the deal. The sign was letting you know the place where you're at is not a normal place. You can act a fool if you want. 
You can go around eating beef jerky, waving it in the air. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's, about to, it's about to get real on you if you don't behave in a certain way, if you don't carry yourself, if you don't respect it. Later on, I, we were in mountain lion country. And Vanessa got more sense than me. As soon as we saw that sign, she was like, nope. And she turned right around <laughs> and walked in. I was like, but I want to go fishing. I just went wandering out. We saw critters. The sign. This is essentially that sign. God is holy. You have to deal in a certain kind of way with a, with a kind of reverence when you're in the presence of this God. I want you to see this text. When Moses, the first thing that Moses says when God calls him, like, like God says, I am going to rescue Israel. Moses is like, bet. And he said, I'm sending you. And he was like, huh? <laughs> right? So right here we see God uses instrumentation to do his work of salvation. He uses an instrument. He doesn't just zap Egypt. He works specifically. He's setting you up. The way he does it, the way he's always done it, the way he has, has always planned to do it is through the instrumentation of a mediator. I'm going to use someone to accomplish this plan for me. And we're going we're gonna to see a little bit later the, the specifics here. But when Moses first hears this call, he says, who am I? And then after this, he says, well, who are you? He, he, he can't, but, but here's the deal. He can't figure out who he is until he figure out, figures out who God is. And you know how God answers the question? He doesn't say, I am who you want me to be. No. He says, I am who I am. I am who I am. Some translated, I will be who I will be. Others translated, this is my preferred translation. I am who I was. Because he refers back to the covenant promise that he made with the patriarchs. I am the same God now that I was for Abraham. I am the same God now that I was for Isaac and Jacob and the 12 sons of Israel. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am. He shortens it. I am. Tell him I am has sent you. The Lord. This is where the name of the Lord is. is it's intensified in terms of its revelation. The name is Yahweh. But because of reverence, it's always read in the Hebrew scriptures, Adonai, which means Lord. Whenever, whenever you come to that in Hebrew Bible, you say Adonai, out of reverence for the name. But this is who God reveals himself to be. God doesn't say, I am what you want. He says, I am who I am. And you have to take God as he is, not as you wish him to be. This, this is what, it's challenging because guess what? If you're a Christian in here, you might think, yeah, non-Christians need to take God as he is, not, not as they want him to be. I'm talking to you too. And I'm talking to myself. You may want God to be the kind of God that sleeps on your need for change. You may want God to be the kind of God that will bless your mess and leave you there. You may want God to be the, the kind of fire insurance God. That's, that's who you might want God to be, but that's not who God is. And he won't let you get away with that. 
He doesn't want you to try and refashion him into something else. He wants you to take him as he is. I am who I am. Do you want to know God? You have to take off your shoes. You have to reverence him. You can only really begin to know God in this way. He he is calling you to humble yourself. To let him be the interruption that you need. He is an interruption. And he's not on your clock. You're on his. Now, in order to make this plain and sound less harsh and to appeal to your 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 mind. I like how, how C.S. Lewis always talks about in uh, screw tape letters that uh, when when he, the senior tempter is teaching the, the junior tempter, he says, never let the subject, the one being tempted, take this into the realm of reason. Because then you lose. Keep it in the realm of the feelings. All right. Now I'm going to appeal to your reason. Let's say. Uh, Let's say you, someone comes to me and, and, and they say, you know, Russ, I, 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 w- I want to get to know you. And I say, OK. Get to know me. And they say, you know, I like to think of you as a blonde Swedish man with an introverted personality. <laughs> I would say. What? You like to think of me as a blonde Swedish man with an introverted personality, that's not who I am. And they said, yeah, but I just prefer to think of you that way. I, I just, I can't believe in a Russ with a beard. I, I can't believe in a Russ who, who is brown skinned with curly hair. I just, it's just too hard. I can't, I can't. And I said, well, look, you might not be able to think of a Russ like that, but that's the Russ you got. And if you want to know this Russ, then you got to know this brown skin, curly hair, bearded Russ. You see what I'm saying? It doesn't matter what you like to think of God like. You need to know what God is like. And this is what revelation is about. God reveals himself for our reception. He doesn't invite you to construct him or to reconstruct him. God is not Mr. Potato Head. When we sit down with the kids, Mr. Potato, I like an arm on his face. Like, I, I'm going to put his ear on his belly button. Like, I'm just, I got, I pick the pieces that I want. God, this ain't, this is not, this is not what we're invited to in this text. But trust me, when you see God as God really is, you wouldn't want him to be any other way. And that's the kicker. That's what I want you to see. Okay. If we are going to claim the kind of dignity to define ourselves and we grant that to other human beings, we must grant it to God. It only makes sense. This is God's revelation, but let's look quickly at God's liberation. Our second point. Look, all the themes are coming together here. You have fire. You have covenant faithfulness. You have God's rescue through judgment. You have salvation through an appointed human mediator. You have the authenticating signs of the mediator. Look, fire. Fire. When's the first time you hear of fire in the Bible? It's in the garden after mankind has sinned. And they are kicked out of the garden. They are ejected. And there is a cherubim with a flaming sword blocking access. 
The next time you hear about fire is when God makes the covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. And God appears as a smoking pot and a flaming torch. And God passes through the cut pieces, signifying that he is going to fulfill this covenant and keep it on his own. Exodus 3 is the next time you hear about fire. And it's God revealing himself in in the flame. It says the angel of the Lord. And the the angel of the Lord is so uh, gelled with the, the identity of God that this is a theophany. This is an appearance of God. And then after this, when do you hear about God? After they are freed from Egypt, the pillar of fire is what gets in between Israel and Egypt, the enemies. And later on, we will see more and more revelation of this God. Deuteronomy chapter four, Moses reminds Israel, he says, for the Lord, your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And then Isaiah will say later on, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? There's this recognition of the holiness of God. The fire theme continues through the scripture. The covenant faithfulness. Listen, God's appeal to being the God of of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Look, I want you to go back to Genesis 15, verse 12 and following. Remember this. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not their own and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. This is not taking God by surprise. God has been with them the whole way through. And now he's finally enacting because he's the one who keeps the clock. And now's the time to rescue. And we see that that rescue is through judgment. The rescue is through judgment. You see what God says. Pharaoh's not going to listen. But already there's this paradigm that salvation comes through judgment. We're going somewhere. Salvation also comes through an appointed human mediator. This is the center here. This back and forth with Moses, this partnership between Moses and God, it helps us to see that God's salvation is going to be through an appointed mediator. In other words, salvation is going to be through a human with divine backing. It's going to be a divine and human rescue, y'all. What we're going to see is that nobody got out of Egypt apart from this mediator. He was the one way out because he was the one who was authenticated by God. And those authenticating signs, I want you to see something. The staff. Why does God give him these signs? The staff is a sign of authority all through the ancient Near Eastern culture. The staff is the sign of identity and authority. The leprous hand, the mediator, is afflicted, but also healed. Then there's the sign. If the authority of the mediator and his healing capacity is not recognized, what is the final sign? It's a sign of judgment and there's blood on the ground. It all comes together in Jesus. Listen, 
The first time we hear about fire, there is a flaming sword in the garden. But if you go and fast forward to a different garden, when someone pulls the sword out, Jesus tells them to put it away. Because it's from this garden, it's from the humility and the suffering and the, and the self-giving that's going to begin in this garden, that re-access is going to be granted. A readmittance is granted. How, look, look, here's the deal. Isaiah asked a question. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? And Isaiah's answer comes in Jesus. Because Jesus is consumed. We don't have to be. When you receive his authority, when you you see his healing power, it's not your blood on the ground, it's his. And that's the way that we can know God, Moses, Moses, intimately as the voice of love. And we can know him, don't come any closer, as the holy God. But now in Jesus, we have access. God says, come all the way in. You have access by the blood of the eternal covenant to come to him, presenting your requests. In John 8, 58, Jesus clears up even more the I am. When there is dispute with the religious leadership, he says, let me get this straight with you. Let me tell you exactly what I'm saying, what I'm claiming for myself. I'm not claiming to be a good teacher. I'm not claiming to just be a sage or a rabbi. I am claiming this. Before Abraham was, I am. He didn't say before Abraham was, I was. He wasn't just claiming to be old or to have had a prophetic encounter with, with, the, uh, with, the, dead Moses, with the dead Abraham who had somehow come back and appeared to him in a dream. No, he's saying, I am. He's claiming the identity of the God of Exodus 3. Jesus is the I am. And I don't know about you, but I feel the need for him. I feel the need for the I am because I am not. I am not righteous. I am not holy. I am not able to rescue myself. I am not able to appear before a holy God in my my wickedness and in my brokenness. I am not able to raise myself from the dead. I am not able to change my, my core being. I'm not able to love better. I'm not able to serve more selflessly without the I am. I am not. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. Jesus is the I am. And we are invited to draw near to him, to have our paradigm changed, to turn aside and look, and to know God's salvation through his judgments. Let's pray. As a final application, remember, Moses is sent. God is loving. God is holy. God is patient. And God is a sending God. And we are invited to identify in that way. And so is Israel. To identify in Moses the sent mediator and in themselves to be a sent people. And we as part of the community of God, as God's people, are invited to identify as a sent people for our neighbors so that others may know the I am. Invite them to reckon with this God and, and, and join them in that same reckoning. Let's pray.